scripture today comes from Luke 15, verses 1 through 3 and 11 through 24. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and bring a ring for his hand and shoes for his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is God's word. Amen. Good morning. Uh, my name is John. I'm one of the pastors here. We're glad that you're with us this morning. As Patrick said, we have a little bit of a uh, skeleton crew this morning. So whether you wanted me or not, here I am. Everybody else is, everybody else is gone. Um, no, but we're glad you're here and we're glad to, uh, to worship with you this morning and uh, to look at God's word together. Um, if you've been around the last few months, we've been looking at a series on the parables of Jesus, all of the different stories that he told to illustrate what his ministry was about. Uh, if you're visiting with us or you weren't here last week, today is the second in a five-part series on this parable, the parable known as the parable of the prodigal son, maybe Jesus's most famous parable. Uh, Drew preached last week, and as he mentioned, we could spend 20 years on this parable because it's so rich with the gospel, with the message of Jesus' work and ministry. In fact, one uh, Bible scholar said this about the parable of the prodigal son. He said, there is no more powerful picture of the forgiving love of God or the motivation behind Jesus' ministry within the entire Bible. 
So if that's true, then we ought to really dig in together into this parable and figure out what does it mean. So last week, Drew gave us kind of the 30,000-foot view of the parable, right? What's it, what's it about from a big-picture perspective? It's about God seeking lost people. That's what God does. That's his heart. And so what we're going to do this week is we're going to begin to zoom in a little bit by looking at the character of the younger son. And I'll, I'll call him the younger son or the younger brother interchangeably. This morning we're talking about the same person. But we're going to look at the character of the younger son and see what we can learn maybe from his story. Now one reason that I think this parable is so powerful, it's so beloved by people, is that everyone reads it and hears a little part of their own story in it. We see ourselves in the different characters, which is, of course, Jesus's point and goal in all of his parables that we would identify, that we would see ourselves in the story. Now, for me, this story, particularly the section about the younger brother, the younger son, reminds me of being in recovery. Now, some of you know this about me already, but I went through an addiction recovery program while I was in seminary in St. Louis for about two years. And I won't get into the details of that this morning, but you're free to ask me about it anytime. I don't have a problem talking about it. The reason this story reminds me of that recovery program is that it's all about the way that sin and grace work in a person's life. See, I went to a recovery group because I began to realize that I couldn't handle the besetting sin in my life. But as I received grace in that group, I began to look back and to really realize what sin had actually done in my life. How destructive it had been, how damaging it had been to me and to other people around me, how much it had blinded my ability to see what was true, and how incapable I was of dealing with it by myself. And so then I also began to see how powerful grace was in its ability to heal and restore. I realized that I needed grace, like you need air or water. To really live, I needed grace. So this morning, we're going to look at the younger brother's journey, and we're going to ask two questions. And as we ask those two questions this morning, I want you to think of your own story and where you connect with the younger brother's journey. I'll have some application along the way, some questions that I hope will help us to be able to do that. But the two questions for us this morning are, what does sin do to us, and what does grace do? do to us. But before we look at the text, let's just take a moment and pray together. God, we thank you for being able to gather freely this morning to worship and to hear from your word. I pray that as we talk through it, as we journey through this word together, that you would help us to see our own hearts in the story. And that as we do that, you would also change our hearts with grace you would help us to celebrate the power of that grace in our lives this morning. Amen. So our first question, 
What does sin do to us? The way we're going to do it is we're just going to walk through the story together and we're going to pull a few things out as we go. It begins, the younger brother, the younger son comes to his father and he demands his inheritance. Now, Drew talked about this last week, but in that culture, this was beyond offensive. Because what the son is essentially saying to his father is, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead, and I want what would be coming to me if you were dead. But his father isn't dead yet. So he's not only choosing property and wealth over the relationship with his father, he's also demanding a significant portion of what keeps the father alive, his livelihood. The text actually tells us that. Uh, Verse 12 in, in your translation, it says that the son demands his property and then the father divides his property. But in the Greek, those are actually two different words. The son demands property, wealth. The father divides his, in the Greek, bios, his life, his livelihood. So the son's demanding, I wish you were dead, but even though you aren't, I could care less about taking away the stuff that helps keep you alive, your livelihood. I don't care. And this is what sin does. Sin breaks radically our relationships. God-given relationships that should be healthy and safe and secure, sin breaks those. Instead of the son living in loving submission to the authority of his father, instead he's characterized by disrespect and dishonor for his father. He values possessions over life and relationship. He values his own independence over his family and his community. And then he's ready to get out the door. Verse 13 says, not many days later, the son leaves. Because to him, these relationships with his father and his family and his community, they're just burdens that he feels like he needs to escape as soon as possible. He is impatient for independence. And again, that's what sin does. It radically wrecks these relationships that are intended to be good. It says that he goes off to a far country. He leaves, he gets as far away as he can because sin creates distance. Creates relational distance spiritually, emotionally, physically. Have you ever had a relationship that was broken or damaged and then you happen to be in the same place as that person? Isn't there an awkwardness of the relational strain. There's some kind of spiritual, emotional, physical distance that's created between you and that person. And that's what the son creates when he leaves the country because this is probably the only country, the only community that he's ever lived in. But he wants to get away because sin radically breaks our relationships and the way that they're intended to be. But it also blinds him Look at the second half of verse 13. It says, 
The son squandered his property in reckless living. Now that word reckless there is sometimes also translated as prodigal, which is where we get the title of the parable, but it means loose or wildly extravagant. The son is just throwing away what he has. You ever seen a movie where um, there's a, a, big, a big crime, a big heist to steal a bunch of money, and there's always some guy from the crew that goes out on the town, and he's just throwing money around everywhere, right? He's lighting cigars with $100 bills, or he's throwing money at, at women for their attention. That's the son here. And that's what we're intended to picture when he's described as being extravagant or reckless living. He took the property the wealth, the livelihood, the life of his father, and he's just scattering it, throwing it away for the sake of his own life. He's recklessly abusing this gift that he's got because he's completely blinded to the right use of what he's given. Reminds me of James chapter 4, verse 3, where James says that people don't have what they ask for from God because they ask wrongly to spend it on their own passions. That's what sin does. It takes the gifts of God and it brings a blindness to how we should use them. It brings a blindness to the way that we should prioritize the things that we've been blessed with. And for the son, that leaves him completely unprepared for what's going to happen next. The text tells us that there was a severe famine. See, famines were not uncommon in the ancient world. We have several of them throughout the Bible. And what the younger son should have been doing is he should have been home serving his father, serving his family and his community helping to increase his father's wealth and property so that when the famine came, they'd be prepared. The father was probably, the household was probably the leader of a local community. And so the increase of the wealth and property would have been used to protect that whole community from this famine. They would have had enough to survive. He should have been a blessing to his father and his family and his community. But instead, he takes that blessing and he uses it for himself. And he puts both himself and his family and community at risk because sin blinds us to the proper use of what God gives us. So it breaks our relationships that are designed to be good and flips them. It blinds us to the way that we're supposed to wisely use the resources God has given us and we use them for ourselves instead. And the consequence for those things for the son is that ultimately sin wants to break him. It wants to break us. So sin destroys relationship. Sin blinds us and sin breaks us. Look at verse, verse 15. The son hires himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. Now, maybe it's hard on the first reading for you to, to see how absolutely broken the son is right here. But let me point out a few things. First, he hires himself out to 
a Gentile, to a non-Jew. Right? Remember, he's not in his country, which means he's in a country of Gentiles, of unclean, defiled people. Then it says he sold himself to this citizen. Later, we didn't read this this morning, but later the older brother says to the father, remember that son of yours who wasted your money on prostitutes. Now, we don't know that for certain because it's not in the text other than the older brother saying it, but what we have here is a juxtaposition. He wasted his money on prostitutes. Now he has to prostitute himself out to this foreign citizen. He has to sell himself to someone else's service. And it's not just that he has to sell himself to someone else's servant who's a Gentile. This man's also a pig farmer. The son has to feed pigs, which are one of the animals that God said were unclean for his people to come into contact with because it would make them unclean. And the son has to feed them. He probably has to feed them on the Sabbath because this man's a Gentile. He doesn't care anything about the prohibition about working on the Sabbath. This is a, someone that's been sold out to him. He doesn't care when he has to work. He probably makes him work on the Sabbath. A lot of people read this parable and they picture the son eating with the pigs. But look again at the text. It actually says, in verse 16, that he wanted to eat with the pigs, but he wasn't even allowed to do that. And then it ends with this phrase, no one gave him anything. And so just in a few verses, the son has gone from taking everything from his father to no one giving him anything. Sin has absolutely, completely broken this son. He separated physically, physical distance from his family and his community. He's physically starving and poor. He's emotionally separated from God and his family because of his disrespect and dishonoring of them. And then finally, he's spiritually separated from God because he is now radically unclean. He's lost everything. One Bible commentator says it this way, for the son, there were many steps away from God. First, rebellion against his father, desire for total independence, then a waste of inheritance, desperate need. Finally, debasement and bondage. And then he says this, but this is the way of sin always. This is what sin does to you and me. One of the great American films is The Godfather. It's a story about a New York mafia crime family. Al Pacino plays Michael Corleone, who's the son of the godfather, the crime family boss. And at the beginning of the film, Michael returns home from World War II, where he's actually become a war hero. And up to this point, Michael has rejected joining the, the mafia world. He tells his fiance that he doesn't want to be like his father and like his family. 
But a little ways into the movie, his father is nearly assassinated, and so Michael is thrust into the family business. And so his fiance comes to him and says, I thought you didn't want to be like your father. I thought you didn't want to be involved in this criminal work. And he says to her, I'm going to, well, I'm going to make it legitimate. I have to do this, but I'm going to make the family business legitimate, no longer criminal. But by that point, we're already getting a sense that Michael is a little bit blind to what's really going on. And so the, the film is a journey of Michael becoming eventually exactly like his father. It's actually a fantastic illustration of the, dis, the destructive power of sin in a person's life. So by the end of the movie, Michael has become the godfather. And during his son's baptism, we switch back and forth between scenes of the baptism and him having all of his political and criminal enemies murdered. And we're supposed to be appalled by the scene. We're supposed to be shocked by watching this moment of holy baptism up against these scenes of murder and death because sin has absolutely blinded Michael. And in the following films, eventually it breaks all of his relationships and it destroys him. In fact, one movie critic has said that the ultimate thesis of the Godfather series is that the wages of sin are death. What is happening when sin comes into contact with us is death. And hear me this morning, that is what it wants to do to you and me. That's sin's goal in our lives. It wants to blind us, it wants to break our relationships, and ultimately it wants to break us. So where are you this morning in the story of this son? Where is sin attempting to gain a foothold in your life and do this to you? We each have to take that seriously because sin really is on a mission to break and destroy us. Now, if you're here this morning and you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, you don't consider yourself to be a Christian, then I can understand that you might not have thought about sin in this way before. Maybe at best you've thought of sin as just sort of a, a Christian code word to describe all the fun stuff that you want to do, but God tells you you can't do. Or maybe you just think it's an easy way of describing the bad stuff that people do sometimes. But I want you to see that the Bible's view of sin is that it is a destructive force that is out to break every single person before it destroys them. Sin really is that serious and that intent on destroying us. And you have to be careful because the problem with sin making us blind is that it's then not easy to see what sin is doing to us. In the middle of his reckless prodigal living, the son certainly did not see the absolute brokenness that he was actually in. And so for those of you this morning that do consider yourself to be Christians, Sin is not any less interested in you. Christians are often the first to dismiss this portion of the parable because of sort of the radical picture of rebellion. We think, oh, that's not me. I'm not that rebellious. But we ought to be very aware that sin wants to make us into that. 
Sin wants to do that to us. Later in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter is talking to Christians when he says that Satan is like a roaring lion seeking to devour us, to destroy us. Sin is after Christians and non-Christians just the same. So where are you this morning? Where is sin blinding you? Maybe in the ways that you've been given gifts for God. That it's distorting the way that you use them wisely. How sin creating distance in the relationships around you. Maybe someone that you're withholding forgiveness from. Or maybe someone that you've sinned against and you're content to receive God's forgiveness and repent to God, but you're not going to go to that person and confess to them. Or where are you directly rebelling against God? Sin that you continually go back to over and over and over again. Maybe on the level of addiction, or maybe just those small sinful thoughts in your heart that you hold on to or dismiss as not really being that big of a deal. Where is sin seeking to gain a foothold in your life or maybe already has one? You have to ask that question of your heart because if you don't, sin will grab a hold of that and it will destroy you. So what do we do? What's the answer? Because that's all kind of depressing. Is verse 17 the answer? We need to come to our senses and go back to our Father and do better. Some people see verses 17 through 19 as the conversion of the Son. This is his redemption. He's rejecting sin and he's returning to his Father. But is he? He certainly is rejecting the rebellious lifestyle that he's been living. And that is part of redemption. There does need to be an acknowledgement of our sin, an awareness of where we've gone wrong. But look at verse 19. He's going to tell his father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. You see, there's still a little bit of blindness here. The son rightly sees his own, excuse me, his own unworthiness, but he thinks he can work his way back in. Let me come back as a hired servant. Let me turn my life around. Give me another chance. That's going to be his appeal to his father. Now, the problem is the son doesn't really understand his father. He doesn't really understand grace. The good news is, he will. Let's look at these last few verses, and we're going to ask our second question. What does grace do to us? We're going to compare what sin did to what grace does. Verse 20, he arose and came to his father. And then there's that great word in the Bible. We start this morning with Ephesians chapter 2. But, it's a great word. It happens over and over again in the Bible. And it's often a reminder to us that God has other plans than what we think. God's doing something different than what we expect. He arose and came to his father, but 
while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Isn't that amazing? How long has he been gone? We have no idea. But we know that this isn't a time of fast-moving transportation. There are no cars or trains. The son left and went to a far-off country. He had enough time to spend all of this wealth and property. Then a famine came. He sold himself to someone else. Then he traveled back from the far country. This can't have been a short period of time. But yet the father saw him a long way off. He was looking for him. Think about that. We learned earlier that sin is impatient. The son took the property and not many days later he was gone. The impatience of sin. But here, the patience of grace. The father has been waiting. He's been looking for his son to return, hoping that his son would come back to his senses before sin was finished killing him. Don't you just love the patience of grace? To know that in your own sin and blindness, God's patient. He's waiting, he's looking for you to return. If you're here this morning and you're struggling with sin, which should be everyone, know that God is patient. Grace is patiently waiting for you, longing for you to return home. What else is it doing? His father sees him and it says he felt compassion. Again, sin was dishonor, disrespect, rebellion. Sin causes the son to wish his father was dead. Grace is compassion. Grace is the father's love for his son in the face of what sin has done to their relationship. Grace produces compassion. And all of you sinners here this morning, myself included, we need to hear that. We need to know that the father has compassion. When you're overwhelmed by your sin, your guilt, broken because of your own sinful choices and decisions, when you have nothing left but guilt and shame and hate, your father looks at you with compassion. What an incredible scene. But sin's also created distance, remember? Relationship distance, emotional distance, physical distance. The son is a long way off, it says, when his father sees him. But grace closes the distance. He felt compassion and he runs to him. He embraces him. He kisses him. This son who wished death on his father, took his livelihood, is now starving, destitute, unclean, working in fields with pigs. He is miles away from his father in every conceivable way, but grace erases that distance. It runs to us. It embraces us. Do you feel that? Can you feel the weight of everything that the son is carrying with him? 
and it just falls away as his father does this? Now pause and see yourself in that moment. In all your shame and guilt, your unworthiness and uncleanness. But your father runs to you and he embraces you. Verse 21, the son is rightly shocked by this, but he's going to get his speech out. He's going to say his speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He realizes his condition. We talked about that earlier. The father lets him confess because the son sees the gravity of his sin. When he's faced with grace, when he's faced with how destructive his sin has been in their relationship, he sees it. He knows how comprehensive it's been. He even says, Father, I've sinned against you and I've sinned against God in heaven. He knows how big his sin is. And the father lets him confess because there does have to be confession for grace to do its work. But before the son can continue into his plan to turn his life around, the father cuts him off. He interrupts him. Grace interrupts. In our attempts to justify ourselves to our father, grace interrupts. When you say to yourself, God, just give me another chance. I'll get it right. I'll, I can do it this next time. Grace interrupts. Grace is not grace if it lets you fix yourself. If it just gives you chance after chance after chance to get it right again, that's legalism. That's the older brother who we're going to talk about another week. Grace interrupts that. And that's why we call it amazing grace. Because it interrupts what we would do in our own efforts. Aren't you tired of trying over and over again to get it right? To feel like constant tension of, if I just got things straightened up in my life, if I got everything in order, then I'd be good with God? Aren't you tired of that burden? So where are you that you need grace to interrupt you? Are you willing to stop and let it interrupt you? And then what happens when it does? Verses 22 and 23. There's a restoration. The father restores the son. Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Who do you think the best robe in the house probably belonged to? I would assume it belonged to the father. Put on the best robe. Put a ring on his hand. Rings that in that time symbolized authority in the community and in the family. Put shoes on his feet. Shoes that free people, sons would wear. Not slaves sold out as servants. Finally, bring the fattened calf. Let us eat and celebrate. This is the animal that was reserved for big, major family events. 
And it's probably too big for just the family to eat. It's probably an entire community meal. And so what we see here is this restoration of the son is total and complete. Just as it was sin's goal to completely break and destroy the son, it's grace's goal to completely restore him. And this is what grace does for you and I. It offers full restoration of our relationship with God. And as sons and daughters, grace welcomes us fully and completely into the family of God with celebration. There's a party, a feast. Does grace feel like that to you? Are you able to celebrate the joy of grace? And if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, I hope you hear this and you desire it, you want it. You long to come into the arms of your father and be completely accepted by him. So grace is patient, it's compassionate, it runs to us, it closes the distance, it embraces us, it interrupts us, finally it restores us. Why? Why does it do all that when we don't deserve it? We'll end with this. Grace offers this to us freely because there's another brother who is not in this parable. He's the brother that's telling this parable. Jesus. Jesus is our greater brother who has already accomplished everything required for us to be sons and daughters of the Father. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He died on the cross for our sins. And then he rose again from the dead, all of that to create a way for grace to run to us. So if your brother Jesus has already done all the work, what is left for you this morning? Arise and go to your father. Let him run to you. Let him embrace you. Confess to him. And then let him restore you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed that you would run to us in our brokenness. And then we're even more amazed that it's able to happen because you sent your son to pay the penalty that we owed, to open the way for you to run to us. You've done everything. Allow us to just step into your embrace, to be restored by you, to come home. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Being part of the family, welcomed back by the Father, he extends a blessing. A blessing of sonship to all his people so that when they go back out of the gathered place of worship, they're blessed for the work of the family, of the kingdom. And that blessing is called the benediction. So hear these words and receive the Lord's benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. 
both now and forevermore. Amen.